Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a micro-college in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head-on. Welcome to MicroCollege. This week on the podcast, we are really excited to have a, a thinker and a philosopher, uh, a scholar of higher education, um, who, who's writing and thinking I've been really enjoying uh, getting to know about. Um, Zach Stein studied philosophy and religion at Hampshire College, and then educational neuroscience, human development, and the philosophy of education at Harvard. While he was a student at Harvard, he co-founded what would become Lectica, a nonprofit dedicated to research-based, justice-oriented reform at large-scale standardized testing in K-12, higher education, and business. He's published a couple of books, uh, one, Social Justice and Educational Measurement, which was based on his dissertation, and it's about the history of standardized testing and its ethical implications. His second book is Education in a Time Between Worlds, which I've been reading and spilling coffee on and uh, making notes in and, and really enjoying a lot. Um, this is a book um, uh, expands the philosophical work to include grappling with the relations between schooling and technology more broadly. He also writes for peer reviewed academic journals across a large range of topics, including the philosophy of learning, educational technology and integral theory. Um, and maybe I could ask if you, Zach, if you could just say a little bit about the sort of projects you're involved with right now, so I don't them up. <laughs> yeah, there's two main projects. One uh, is work, which most people know through the Consilience Project, which is my collaboration with Daniel Schmachtenberger. Uh, and Consilience uh, Project is essentially an attempt to grapple with the sense-making crisis on the way to grappling with the larger meta-crisis of civilization. And then adjacent to that, uh, I do work at a think tank, which is just renamed itself as the Center for World Philosophy and Religion. Uh, and that's the work I do uh, with Gaffney, Mark Gaffney and Ken Wilber, uh, which is foundational rethinking of what philosophy needs to be in this planetary age um, and uh, foundational metaphysics and meta theory, theory of knowledge yeah. and uh, value theory. So those two projects co-occur. Uh, and I ended up stumbling out of philosophy of education and into something like catastrophic risk mitigation <laughs> and existential risk, the study of existential risk. Uh, when I saw how bad the standardized testing system had become in the United States, I realized that you could build an infrastructure with good intention to try to make something, to, he to try to heal something uh and yet it's making the problem worse and you can't recognize this and this was a dynamic that was identified by joseph tainter in the study of civilizational collapse and so i stumbled into this field uh and my work with you know gaffney and and schmachtenberger and, and ken wilber uh is at that foundational core of thinking about what civilization is what it ought to be and um so that education is at the root of that question. Uh, so 
Yeah. You can see the, the line from where from there uh, to there from your other work. So it's not surprising they go to that that civilizational level. It's already the, what you're talking about in yeah. the context of education. So, well, we're so, so glad to have you on today. Really excited to talk to you about your ideas. Um, here on the Microcollege podcast, we always begin with biography. So I'm wondering if you could reflect a bit um, on your life when you were in that early adulthood phase, 18 to 21 years old, the kind of age of students that we're working with here at Thoreau College. Um, where were you? What were what were you thinking about? What were the big influences on you at that phase of life? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> let's see. I'm what they call a high-achieving dyslexic. So did not do well in high school. I mean, I did well enough in high school, but I didn't succeed by conventional standards in high school. <laughs> uh, and, and that's when I started to focus on standardized testing and how unfair it was because, you know, my nervous system literally functioned differently. Uh, and in graduate school, when I studied neuroscience, I, I looked at dyslexia and realized oh, that it's an understandable uh, neurological difference that would have been selected for specifically preference of peripheral vision over foveal vision. That's another Another conversation, <laughs> but so I didn't uh, identify as a book learner or a student. I identified as a musician in high school, in part to protect my identity from the way it was being, I thought, mischaracterized by the testing and other approaches to education. I had wonderful teachers who helped me do that <laughs> and who told me grades weren't everything and that test performance didn't matter and that so so I got lucky um, and uh, went to a high school actually very near Walden Pond uh, in Massachusetts and so Thoreau specifically and the transcendentalists if there was any reading that I did it was to try to make sense of my identity uh, you know in a religious way and so I went to Hampshire College which was a a interesting experimental college with no tests and no grades and uh, went there to be a musician and uh, yeah it was in that context that I transitioned out of being a musician into thinking about philosophy incessantly <laughs> uh, and you know, I, I specifically tried to find my way out of the educational system. Uh, and then of course, went right back in <laughs> to graduate school, which was, which was a trick. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's hard for me to separate uh, my work as a philosopher of education from those early years of being very kind of alienated from the from the system, kind of not explicitly not buying into the system. Um, uh, so does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's it's uh, it really has emerged as an important theme in these conversations that I've been having with people um, for this podcast. You know, people who are thinking about education, people who are experimenting, starting new initiatives. Um, won't be surprising that m many of those people have stories about not 
having positive experiences or 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 being self-identified in some way as as having a, a learning disability or a, you know being having been labeled in that way whether it's ADD yeah. or dyslexia or 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 something like that um and uh yeah so that 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 is clearly a big impetus for people to think about education and to 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 figure out how to make a different uh a difference it is it is and i and i benefited tremendously from the educational opportunities that were put before me and i had great relationships with my high school teachers um but by conventional standards i was kind of a, a slacker who was clearly underperforming <laughs> you know etc etc um yeah. but i also was able to separate schooling from learning I think that became even an important distinction for me later as a philosopher. Like even now, it's something I tell parents very important to get straight. <laughs> that yep. I get understands the difference between schooling and learning. And if you confuse them, then sometimes a bad experience with schooling will lead to cynicism and learning in general, yeah. which is very dangerous. So I became a self-directed learner in part in reaction to schooling, kind yeah. of like, like a rebel learner where I was reading things I wasn't supposed to read or whatever. Uh, and so that was, that's interesting. My mom, you know, was an educator, so I credit her with that, <laughs> uh, probably. Uh, so I don't want to make it seem like I was preyed upon by the school system or had a terrible experience. I, I didn't, and I, I enjoyed going to the library and things of that nature. Um, yeah, but again, yeah, dyslexia was a very defining uh, throughout grade school, middle school, and, and high school. Yeah, so the, uh, your your connection with with Hampshire, your experience there is also interesting. That stands out in your early biography. Um, you know, that's not the first time that Hampshire has come up in these conversations. And um, the the current um, president um, of Deep Springs College, which is a key. Um, uh, influence for what we're doing is a is a former Hampshire professor, Sue Darlington, um, and so we had Sue Darlington, yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Another interesting thinker. Her work is is uh, I really enjoyed learning about that too. Um, but you know, I think in your writing, in the, for example, in the book um, Education in the Time Between Worlds, you talk about teacherly authority and and uh, you know, Hampshire is is um, is really known as a, as an important place of experimenting about that relationship, the format formality yeah. of relationship between teachers and students and just the structuring of education. So I'm wondering about, you know, what aspects of that experience you've you've drawn on? Like what was what were the um what was valuable about the 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 alternative nature of education there in your future thinking? Huh. I mean Hampshire questioned teacherly authority to a fault, I would say. <laughs> uh, and, and that was problematic. So you had, you know, now Hampshire is very different than when I went there. I went there when it was still actually crazy. And it was because of the things that went down actually when I was there, including Hampshire Halloween and a couple other things, where now they've set up things where there is tracking of student performance and, you know, learning agreements that are actually enforced and, and other things. Uh, but it, I think in that context, when, when there isn't the easy appeal to institutional authority as a basis for teacherly authority, then actual teacherly authority can come forward 
when it's present. Um, uh, and that also something I witnessed in high school, which is like, and again, I define it in a very specific way. It has to do with an asymmetry of capacity. And it's very important that a society recognizes these asymmetries of capacity because that's where education can occur. Um, you know, this guy knows how to shoe a horse. You don't know how to shoe a horse. <laughs> you should learn. Like that's, and there's no contesting that. Like, uh, so when you see that the spontaneous, non-institutionalized, te emergent teacherly authority, this is why people love outdoor stuff. Because it's like, if you can't start a fire, yeah. it doesn't, like yeah, that guy can, there's an asymmetry of capacity and uh, it's just very real and very useful uh, to be reflective about. And so that stuff occurred at Hampshire. It's incredible professors and incredible uh, peers. We're just like, whoa, <laughs> like, you're actually a lot smarter than me. Let me learn from you. Uh, and this is true of, of music as well. Uh, in that context, I was studying music for the first couple of years um, and witnessed incredible, um, incredible teacherly authority that had no institutional backing at all. Spontaneous improvisation between musicians uh, and lessons are being taught. So, so yeah. That's, I think, one thing to note. Now, if if you push it too far, people get confused and you still have people even, I don't know if this happens in outdoor retreats, but still questioning teacherly authority, even when there is a very clear asymmetric capacity. Um, and uh, so that's interesting. Um, yeah. And even though I had a good time, I'm sure, I don't know what it's like now, but upon graduating in the first few years, I didn't tell people to go there because <laughs> it was it was crazy, you know, in terms of its um, its ineffectiveness in transforming some students' capacities. Um, and again, I, I did my Div 3, which is the final Hampshire project on Hampshire College and its founding and the philosophy of education that went into its creation. And the most important statistic was that in the first several years, when the curriculum was first put to the test, the average age of the incoming student was 21. Right. Because they've been going out and doing, you know, international work or whatever, or had been in the army or something that, uh, and when I was there, the average age was what, 18 or something, 19? Um, yep. There's a big difference between 18 and 21, and that you really yeah. can see that in intimate settings. Yeah, to be very, very self-directed as a student learner, which, which I think I was basically ready to do at that age, but many of the other students were not, and they didn't have an adjacent curriculum that could actually scaffold them the way they needed to be scaffolded. scaffolded. Um, uh, and then the whole other problem is just the student loan debt. Yeah. So you're sitting there talking about the Greeks or whatever, and Emerson and having a wonderful time, but <laughs> you're also just, yeah, piling you know, up. Yeah. Going to student loan debt. Um, so there, so that became an interesting tension, I think, which is the economics of, of it. Um, yeah. So I can just you know, <laughs> yeah, that, reflect on my college year. So it's like this could be. But a, you can see those are all things you've mentioned that again come up in your work and, and certainly have come up in our you know experiment here in thinking about how to construct new new initiatives in 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 education for young adults. And um, so we'll, we'll get into that. Um, I think you know, what, what 
one of the, the questions about teacherly authority that you talk about in general is is part of this, you know, this time between worlds, right? This kind of period of, of civilizational crisis, metacrisis that you're, you're pointing to, um, in which authority in general is people don't know how to relate to an, an authentic authority anymore. Mm-hmm. That's so, so absent, but, um, yeah, so maybe we could, you know, step out, uh, another step and, and talk about this concept of being in a time between worlds, right? That's, that's kind of a, a theme in a lot of your work. And what do you mean by that? And, and what are the characteristics of our moment that, that give it this description? Um, uh, <coughs> excuse me. I mean it in a in kind of a strict historiographical sense. Um, so it's um, it's a time when the basic structures of civilization are in flux, and this has happened before. The most the most prominent in recent memory is the transition out of the feudal system and into modernity or capitalism with nation states. Right. Um, before that, you had the, the crowns and the courts and the princes and a divine authority that was granted to, uh, you know, the regents. And that whole thing fell apart. <laughs> and the Thirty Years' War swept Europe and an entire structure of civilization, an economy system, a supply chain system, a governmental system, a taxation systems were all completely transformed. Um, and so that transition out of the feudal system into modernity, capitalism, as we now know it. Uh, so I'm saying we're in a situation at least that significant, where the very fundamental bases of the civilizational infrastructure are changing, but we're in the flux before they reset. <laughs> so we're, we're in the equivalent of the 30 years war now. Yeah. Uh, so that's a decent analogy. Now, it may be a deeper transition of that. It may be more like the Bronze Age collapse and the Axial Age. We may be looking at a, an even deeper reset. Um, but just to get the analogy, I think it just works to think about like 15th, 16th, 17th century and kind of like that, especially the Thirty Years War as the climax of it. Uh, people would mention if people are... Um listening to this we're interested in, in in a deep dive into that uh, i'd really recommend zach's conversation with lena rachel anderson on the the metamodern podcast um about um jan amos comenius um comenius yeah. right. yeah. is, a, is a really important historical figure that most americans certainly have never heard of <laughs> and so the 30 years war is something i think most americans don't Correct. have any even if they're, they're kind of historically oriented, they don't know much about it, but it's a totally wild, cataclysmic kind of event in yeah. Central Europe that really yeah. you have a sense of, of, a, of a civilizational transition in radical ways. Yeah, and and a lot of it had to do with the eventualities implicit in the creation of the printing press. Yeah. That, that what swept across Europe and reset the whole system was both the mass production of native language Bibles uh, so, and the creation of these textbooks uh, and propaganda. And then you had the printing press enabled bureaucracies uh, that you get the, 
the East and the trading companies, right? The large, the Dutch and the British, um, the first capitalist organizations you couldn't have had without the printing press enabled bureaucracies, which outcompeted the, the kind of runner systems and the stuff that the crowns had. Um, so comparably today, the digital, the eventualities implicit in the digital, which is just what is going to play out is uh, as unimaginable to us as capitalism was to a feudal serf. <laughs> uh, is this system that is in the process of emerging here. Um, now it's a dangerous time, obviously, in the Thirty Years' War was horrific um, uh, and a paradigmatic. So it was horrific both at the physical level of just warfare <laughs> and it was horrific at the psychological level of the displacement of identity due to worldviews in conflict and, and the subterfuge of these propaganda networks enabled by it. Um, enabled by the printing press. Uh, and so there's just, it's hard to not see the analogies. Um, and so the, as the, as the basic infrastructure, social structure, superstructure stack of a civilization begins to get reformatted, uh, the problem begins to look fundamentally educational. This is where Comenius comes in. He was seeing this play out <laughs> and, and moved to Amsterdam and commandeered printing presses <laughs> to do counter propaganda uh, and to put out the most influential textbooks in language learning that had ever been produced, which were literally used for 400 years, not just as novelty, but used as for 400 years. Uh, and that was innovating at the most advanced level of the technological stack, which were these printing presses, in the interest of education in a time when truly the future was open. Um, uh, you know, the Dutch East India Company, and this is who Comenius dedicated his book to. These were people from the future, basically at that time, who were already working in the world to come. and. Uh, so yes, this question of what emerges, um, sometimes we talk about the possibilities of a techno-feudalism, um, uh, but you can also have um, technological open societies right. and the possibility of actual participatory governance, um, <laughs> but you also have techno-authoritarianism, techno-feudalism, competing as world structures as well. So that's some of the theorizing that I do education in the context of, because you have to think about, okay, well then during that time, and Comenius theorized, you know, what is higher education? Um, it, it's literally the pivot point to that new, to the new world um, where it's incubated, as it were. Uh, and so, he called for a very cosmopolitan universalization of knowledge and knowledge production. Um, right, vernacular language, universal literacy, you know, mm -hmm. cheap books and paper, yeah. uh, you know, just lots of lots of opportunities to engage with formal education supported by the state and, and organized by the by all the parts of society. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, and specifically one, one language to unite Europe. Um, 
and one kind of modality right. instruction and socialization. Uh, and then he imagined the universal college of light, which would be the kind of like clearinghouse of all knowledge being created in civilization <coughs> where quality control would be run and then disseminated through textbooks in this kind of cyclic knowledge production, education, universalism, uh, which is the heart of Comenius's project. Um, so he was, he was an amazing thinker. And it, it, it's an interesting paper. It was a huge surprise to me. I'd never heard of Comenius. Um, yeah, that I really, I really enjoyed. You know, I've heard about Comenius, but I certainly learned a lot more from from that conversation and following up on, on things you mentioned there. Um, but yeah, so I think one of the things that emerges from that last change of worlds, that transition to the modern capitalist uh, kind of um, global world that were was arising through the Dutch East India Company and other developments at that time, was um, was a a you know a particular approach to to education that that you know, eventually uh, came about to be what you end up calling a, you know, this reductive human capital model of, of education, yeah. right? It's the, the, the purpose of education is to feed the economy, right? Can you keep, say a bit more about what that, that's like the metaphor that has been organizing education in, in, in recent times? Yeah, so I call it, yeah, reductive human capital theory. Um, and it's the default theory of the human and society <clears throat> that kind of people don't even realize they hold it because it's quite simple it's basically the idea is that the function of education in a society is to reproduce the labor needed to keep the economy going right so <clears throat> education is seen as a sub-function of the broader economic system yeah. Which, which is in one part obvious like it has to be that it has to be that always education will be what allows us to do the labor necessary to keep society going um, so in even simpler terms it's like what's education for it's to help you get a job right uh, it's the water in which we are swimming the fish in which we are swimming it is it requires some some effort to step out of that and see oh that's actually what's going on here right and <clears throat> And so in one sense, like, of course, that's obvious. Education is to get you a job. And that's why you can't argue against that. It's, it's just, it's an incomplete idea. Um, and it leads to a way of th thinking about education reform and the financing of education and specifically schools, uh, which is very partial, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things we see, and this comes from Bowles and Gintis, which whose books Capitalism, uh, Schooling in Capitalist America, I believe is the name of the book, early book, very, very good book. Uh, they talk about this isomorphism between the structure of production, the roles of production, and the structure of education, the roles of education in a, in a society in, in capitalism. So the most obvious one was like during the years where it was mostly farm labor, you had the one room schoolhouse. Uh, just kind of like a farm for kids. <laughs> uh, then you get the factory system and you get the schools as we've kind of stereotyped them now as what a school is, is the factory, the big factory school, eventually the American high school, which is like the multiple little schools feed the big one school. Um, and then you get 
late 90s, you start to get this uh, kind of like post-industrial economy that emerges. Uh, and then you get the charter schools and the small high schools, big high schools divided in small high schools, each of them with a focus like a startup company. Mm-hmm. So you get to kind of like Gates Foundation model of kind of globalist, globalist, late capitalist, white collar um, school. Um, so that's that this example of this isomorphism shows that, okay, so the school is thought of fundamentally as the tail on the dog of the economy. Yeah, the economy changes and there the school follows after, yeah. Yeah, and so it's like as the economy creates new jobs that then maybe we'll start to teach kids to do that, but maybe not. Uh, So what I'm suggesting is something that's a a flip because what that's led to, which is what occurs in most extractive economic models, which is ultimately what that is, um, where you're taking from the resource for the end of, uh, of, let's say, um, a company. Uh, So you're degrading the human substrate, like you can degrade the soil, or like you can degrade the atmosphere of the water through industrial extraction. Um, We talk about the limits or the kind of like um, planetary boundary conditions, which just we can't extract or pollute beyond certain boundaries that you start to get problems, there are similar boundaries within the human psyche. Uh, And so if you instrumentalize the educational system enough to the needs of the economy, you can create an educational system, which is what happened with No Child Left Behind, which becomes too too corrosive (laughs) to go through. It's too difficult. uh, so then it starts to backfire the machines break and you have to take it apart and see what happens. Um, so that's, I think that the situation we're in now, which is why I'm arguing that because it's a time between worlds, we have to, in a sense, rethink the foundational organization, the foundational infrastructure or institutional basis of education. Which, so I call for the end of schools. Uh, and it's obvious in K-12 that you can do this, this kind of decentralized network hub model with pop-up classrooms enabled by kind of like AI time and skill sharing networks. Uh, so there's a bunch of things to talk about there, but the model applies to higher education too. Uh, that in the sense that it's going to be a qualified decentralization of knowledge production and the kind of a multiplicity of locations for for advanced education emerging out of this decentralized educational hub network Um, because the schools as they exist now especially as we get advances in robotics and machine learning, the the schools as they exist now as feeders of human capital into the economy, like as that is their basic metaphor, which is like, okay, if you succeed in school, you get a job that makes you live a life that's happy. Uh, (coughs) It just won't be made. You can't maintain that ideology in the face of what actually exists. So you're going to have a delegitimation of the schools, which is already occurring. Well advanced. Which COVID sped up. And so then people pull out 
into these decentralized networks. And this is the homeschooling movement now. Uh, and depending where the politics go with the K-12 system and how, what the states do, you'll have people moving geo, like actually moving physically to get into legal districts where they can pull their kids out and then distribute it spatially. Yeah, that, that really is something that I'm seeing in, in real time very mm -hmm. active here. This is a place here in southwestern Wisconsin, Viroqua, our little town here, that people are moving to, to do all kinds of different educational experiences, including what we're doing with, with the college and the, and the folk school here. Um, so that's a powerful um, image, this idea of this decentralized education hubs. And you know, the other image you have is the kind of the staffing of those hubs are citizen teacher scientists, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it reminded me of something um, from um, this really interesting, I guess you could say meta-theoretical book, um, but also very practical. I'm wondering, have you heard of a, a pattern language, Christopher Alexander and? Uh, yes, yeah, Christopher Alexander, yeah, the timeless way of building. Yeah, yeah. there's an image in this book, and this is this is largely a book about architecture and design, and but it also is it's thinking about all sorts of social arrangements, okay. uh, physical arrangements. There's a description, uh, and really drawing from from Ivan Illich in in this book about about a you know a decentralized kind of a, a basically a city as a university. Right. And uh, there's kind of an estimate there of, you know, every, you know, every three or four households, there'll be someone engaged in teaching, right, teaching something, and there'll be, you know, right. all of these different hubs in, in the city. And when I read that, and also read your description, it just it reminded me of what's happening here, right? There are so many people are engaged with teaching something in their homes, all kinds of different spaces. And so I think it really is a realizable idea, especially education, uh, you know, an appropriate use of technology certainly could help it quite a lot. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that the, we're right now at a place where augmented reality specifically uh, is gonna change the educational landscape again is the smartphone already disrupted it uh, and if we started to use them right they could appropriately displace schooling right now they're basically destroying adolescents brains <laughs> uh, because of for other reasons but uh, augmented reality which would basically be wearables like glasses and and other headspaces um, allow for incredible pedagogical innovation in skill uptake. Um, so imagine a whole bunch of tasks like working on a car where you put these on and you look at the engine and the engine's revealed through augmented reality and it's and you're walked through actually operating on the car by the glasses, similarly with tours of the forest and other things. Um, so it gets to be this place where the baseline availability of educational technology will so obviously displant the idea of like sitting in a desk listening to a teacher. <laughs> uh, and so that means you're going to be not having any reason to keep these kids locked in buildings all day, which means you're going to have to route them through their towns, their cities, their locations. Not that you wouldn't have places where they can get together, but it's obvious that, you know, so I'm just, so it's going to be how long will we try to keep them trapped in rooms of with kids of the same age?
like under a certain kind of supervision, um, which is a very story which didn't happen. Like that didn't happen in the feudal system. Like back to the time between worlds, like it was capitalism that that did that age segregation as a function. And even early one room schoolhouses were, yeah. were not age segregated. So yeah, we're seeing a radical disruption of institutional form. The delegitimation now for political reasons once coupled to these technological innovations, you're going to see something very interesting happen. Uh, the hope is that resources are reallocated from governments and businesses as opposed to trying to keep, as opposed to their resources, keeping the old system locked in, which would be a huge problem. A lot of inertia in existing systems, a lot of friction there. Yeah, a lot of friction. Yeah, so I think, you know, that, that image of, that the the differences between different forms of education connected to economy and, and life ways is really easy for for me to understand here. I mean, we we have a really active Amish community. In fact, right now people might hear some clunks and and bonks. We've got Amish people working on the building that I'm in, um, but they have basically a one room schoolhouse, and and which also means a lot fewer days and hours of school. Um, school only goes up to eighth grade, and you know it's clear that. School is only a small part of the education. Most of it is happening in the home or on the farm, yeah, right? Exactly. And that's, you know that is that is you can see is very effective for their economy, right? For the way that the technological system yeah. they're, they're working with and very thriving kind of a community we can see every day. Um, but you know, I think another powerful idea that's related to this that that um, you know we we that I that in your work is you know this kind of the existing model of the reductive human capital kind of metaphor. For education, you present, you know, a a different metaphor, a metaphor of of you know education as you know as ecological stewardship, right? The mind not as a computer or as a steam engine, but the mind as an ecosystem. That's really that's an idea that I could say is already influencing the way I talk and think to people. So can you expand on that? How can we what, what does it do if we think about the mind as an ecosystem? Yeah, the mind will. There's a couple ways to get there. The, the what is the meta? What's the basic metaphor we use to to describe the mind? This is kind of what the section is about because yeah. we're in a world where we talk about the mind as a computer, um, like Freud talked about it as a steam engine. Right. We're talking about it as a computer, even in the vernacular of people who are not cognitive scientists. They still talk about getting downloads and having bandwidth, and uh, even the way we think about memory and other things usually on analogy with computer. Um, and then you get into the cognitive sciences and the neurosciences where it's not a metaphor where they're trying to actually ontologize strong computationalism as a foundation of understanding mindedness, which is a mouthful that basically amounts to a, a reduction of even scientific theorizing about the mind to the limits of computationalism. Um, which also means the limits of a binary, which also assumes non-biological computational substrate as a possible location of mind. Um, very different from what most psychologists would be willing to take on board. Uh, I think if you're if you're trying to understand the mind, you have to think of it first in biological terms. Um, so the first thing I do here is reject the mind of as computer metaphor. Like perhaps it's useful for some explanatory strategies, but 
but clearly we are not computation. Um, and what that means is that you can't think of the mind in simple quantitative architectures. So like, for example, the IQ, this would be similar to like random act and RAM, right? Or like computational power, some simple quantitative representation of an architecture that says, basically, this is the thing. Uh, so that kind of reductive simplicity is rejected when you take a biological view because um, the biological system is dynamic and unpredictable. Uh, and the number of, number of variables that would be necessary to fully capture the dynamism of a biological entity is much, much greater than a computer. <laughs> uh, a good biologist, no, you put some measures in an ecosystem, but they, these are like little, little, <laughs> little tiny things. And then, so that, so that's the first bit is that you're, you're dealing with some, not some complicated, simple architecture, dealing with a truly complex dynamical architecture where measurement uh, doesn't yield prediction. Um, and then you also have to think in terms of evolution, growth, transformation, and nonlinearity. Uh, so the mind as a computer, you're either smart or you're not smart. <laughs> you either have a high IQ or you don't have an high IQ, <laughs> right? Uh, Whereas the organismic view, what you have is an evolving adaptive nonlinear system, which means that you get unpredictable behavior in novel contexts. Uh, and you also have longer term transformations that yield qualitatively new things like new identity structures, um, new value systems other things that emerge at the high end of psychological functioning. So don't get me wrong, there's fast thinking and slow thinking, if you will. And much of the fast thinking, you can do metrics on and do some prediction. Uh, but that's the lowest common denominator of mind. What I'm talking about here is the, the conceptual self-identified mind, uh, the slow thinking, <laughs> reflective um, mind. Uh, where the most important education occurs. Um, uh, so that is organismic. And so what that means is you are, you're an evolving ecosystem of interrelated skills, concepts, ideas, and states. Um, you're not at some developmental level, nor are you identified with some unified intelligence or capacity. Uh, and the organismic model uh, suggests that the educator's goal is not to fix or augment, <laughs> right? Um, so if you're operating on a computer, then you would essentially somehow write in some code and augment the, the nature of the thing, almost as a causal intervention into a mechanical system, where you, if you do this, you will get that output. Right. Uh, whereas with the biological system, usually what you're doing is trying to observe the dynamic of the system and then steward or shepherd or neutrify or enable 
uh, as opposed to intervene, uh, let alone pre precisely predict. <laughs> uh, and so this is the, that metaphor of the educator as environmental steward or educator as gardener. Um, now, this is actually a pretty classic metaphor in kind of John Dewey-like kind of progressive education. It's this kind of radically child-centric, <laughs> whole person approach to education. Uh, and so that's true. But the main difference here would be that in my, in my view, anyway, um, there are real dynamics to learning that can be observed, which do therefore put constraint on what student-teacher interaction should be like. So I'm very much saying yet yeah, mind to the internal dynamic of the student, but I'm also saying note what that dynamic is and what therefore it needs, as opposed to just watching and letting it do what it will do, there's this question of what ought it do. Um, and there will always be some guidance. Um, even with plants, there will be, that needs to be pruned, actually. <laughs> that's yeah. not like what we're doing here right now is <laughs> pruning. Exactly. That's it can not... be kind of shocking, right? To, to people, you know, to like, gosh, we're going to cut all of that off, right? Or castration, like different things you do with animals, like that. That intervention is is you know that's an important part of the stewardship actually. Exactly. Um, Dewey said something like, <clears throat> "That limitation of freedom is warranted, which allows for greater future freedom." So again, this is a mouthful, but he's basically saying like, "Don't limit students' freedom. When you do, you you, you must have in mind that it, this is going to open future freedom." So it's like, "Okay, kid, I know you don't want to learn the alphabet." <laughs> You'd rather run around in the mud or whatever, but I'm going to sit you down, little kid, and you're going to learn the alphabet. I'm going to limit your freedom now because I know that as soon as you get this alphabet, a whole range of freedoms open up for you that you would not have. Reading is a great example of that. It's like it can suck to learn to read. Wait until they really want to. Even then, it can be hard. But once they get it, then it's like, boom, it's a disproportionate amount of freedom opened through that uncomfortable constraint. So this question of when to prune, when to step in and put structure uh, is key. Uh, it's very key. And that's why the teacherly authority dynamic is so subtle because there are times when the student doesn't know exactly what's good for them. And so there's a kind of trust and a kind of responsibility that needs to be held. Um, and we don't quite have the cultural and institutional containers for that right now. Um, because that requires non-institutionalized moral authority, um, which is hard to build, which is hard to build, which, which cultures do spontaneously build, but our institutions tend to bureaucratize the authority structure um, yeah, so there's a lot to say there. I mean, we're, there is. We're yeah, we're 
That, yeah. that I think points to the last the the last big topic that I wanted to, to be sure to ask you about, um, which was the spiritual dimension, right? You you know the you don't shy away from talking about spiritual teachers and you know I know that esoteric traditions of various kinds have been things of your interest in the past. Comenius yeah. was an esotericist and. Um, and I guess you know this this question of, of moral authority and this kind of leadership has often had a connection to uh, you know religious and spiritual dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what is your sense in this in this uh, emerging you know decentralized um, you know this this new ecosystem of of education that you see? What is the role of um, spirituality of of religion and of this you know here in the at the micro college? um kind of movement we ended up just talking about meaning centered or, or you know kind of the inner deve- development aspects of education right if you take education broadly construed as a social function before schooling there was education right cavemen had education like tribes had education the egyptians had it like so there's always been education most of what that education has been about has been what we would now call religion like the predominant so education's role is to make you able to step into society as the elders now hold society they will die you someone must become the new elder education brings you into the fold of this project of living together of civilization and for most of human history most of education or at least the foundational bits especially the bits where we'd say we are doing education <laughs> those things have been religious by our standards not religious um and uh so it's a remarkable experiment actually to separate church and state and to put education specifically in a domain that is not religious um and for a while the american civil religion and certain forms of nationalism uh kind of stood in place of, let's say, that as a source of meaning. But now that has faded. Thankfully, the vast majority of most of the world is just religious. If you go to India or Africa, (laughs) uh, you have just, you know, religion. Um, But in the West, it is uh interestingly difficult i think to have certain conversations which humans have always had about like for example what happens when you die um what is the meaning of all this why is this here i talk about that on your own time it's not doing (laughs) (laughs) and and who are these who are these religious like who's the buddha like who's what was christ like which of course Thoreau, I mean, those are Thoreau's topics, right? Um, and Thoreau's an interesting example of like a, a autonomous Western individual kind of like pulling from a spiritual marketplace. I mean, he's reading the Bhagavad Gita in translation through printed material that probably came from Europe, right? And maybe even Emerson's library. But the point being that, yeah, we inherit the maybe unique privilege of not being born into an inescapable tradition many in the west you can take a religion you don't have to like be born into one um but that also is a displacement it's a displacement um and so i believe that as the schools come apart and we get that 
decentralized, emergent education, we'll see a very clear resurgence of religious and spiritual bases for those. And some will be just what most people call a kind of fundamentalism. This will happen. Uh, but we will see a lot more other innovative, higher order, synthetic, uh, emergent religious cultures, I believe, is occurring. Uh, so the inevitability of some world religion is interesting. We talk a lot at that Center for World Philosophy and Religion about a neo-perennialism. And perennialism being what Thoreau was on to, actually, uh, that all the religious traditions have been, you know, men touching one elephant. Men, <laughs> sick. Is what it, you know, but this is this is the nature of it, uh, and so that view that there's a single truth, you know. Uh, so if you have the unique privilege of not being born into a tradition, you're displaced, but then you can orient towards a perennialism, as Thoreau did. Um, so, but there's many, 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 many things running interference between us and the clarity of that truth that Thoreau was trying to get at. So the first order of business is the sacredness of your own awareness and attention. And so if you, when one is feeling called to a religiosity, um, get off the internet. <laughs> Just get off the internet uh, and get books and people and if you do consume media, consume long form media, because a lot of what we're seeing now that's called the meaning crisis or alienation and depression and these things, at the base of a lot of that is, it is emotional uh, effect of attention dysregulation, full stop. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and so this need for long form training and long form attention is a basis for, and so this is why Buddhism is an interesting doorway in because the foundation is meditation, um, but you don't need to do Buddhist meditation. You can just read a, a book, a simple lo-fi book <laughs> for 45 minutes straight, right? Uh, and then longer. Those kinds of things I think are the basis of the stack of the religious and spiritual exploration. Otherwise you get distracted up into weird beliefs and psychedelics and all kinds of stuff. And I'm not saying there aren't weird beliefs that are true and psychedelics are great. I'm not saying this is bad, but I'm saying you need to get there very deliberately and very contemplatively. If you don't have the uh, attention to pay attention to your visions, then you're not. Yeah, that's it. right. You're like it'll come and go. And so you, you need to be able to have that long holding of attention. And in, in our culture, that's actually a radical act, an extremely radical act, because the the base right now of extraction on the planet is not diamond mines and rare earth minerals and things. It's actually your attention is the most precious thing that's being extracted for other people's profit. So I, I wish adolescents would understand this because then the biggest fuck you to the man is, is to be able to just control your own attention and not be not be taken by the by the man's social media, basically. Uh, so that would be also my reflections on the spirituality is get your own attention straight before you start, you know, going up and out. Yeah, that, that certainly is one of the reasons that we, that, you know, I've been 
taking inspiration from Henry David Thoreau. I think that you know, really early on in our kind of American experiment and the kind of the real acceleration of technology, he, I think, was sensing this and devised his own <laughs> educational like experiment in 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 yeah. in working with your attention, right? What he was doing at Walden Pond was was making some really conscious decisions about what he was going to pay attention to. Some yes. books him in his inner life and nature right in this really profound way and you know that when we read you know i read walden and when i read it with students like it is you can follow that trajectory in the course of that book right he starts by all this stuff in the world yep. and the newspapers and the neighbors and by the end he is watching the snow melt <laughs> yeah exactly. he's watching you know and, and so that that is definitely something we try to 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 build into our curricula here this week um we're in early march the snow is melting and things are getting muddy um the students are off for five days in in a cabin basically on their own solo um and uh, i've been checking in with them but you can see that kind of you can see mental health improving actively <laughs> and, yeah. and attention you know is, is really palpable um, from day to day so yeah i think that, that yeah. that's yeah cool. yeah yeah, and Thoreau was definitely, I mean, dealing with his own mental health. Like he had to get away into this cabin and yep. and be able to focus and get at what was most important, and that was key for him. And so, yeah, so you gotta respect your own attention. And I appreciate it. This has been fun. I appreciate yeah. it. This this is a beautiful. Thank you so much for your work, and thank you for your your time and for for sharing these ideas with us today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you.